you are listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church Podcast. To learn more about Sunnybrook Church, including our Sunday gathering times and opportunities throughout the week, visit us online at sunnybrookchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Lydia Miller. I am so excited to have the opportunity to start this series with you this morning. This is one of my favorite series that we do each year. If you have your Bibles, we are going to start today in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bible or maybe your Bible app, if you want to flip to that scripture, Acts comes after all of the Gospels. It's after the life of Jesus. It focuses on the life and the birth, really, of the church of Jesus. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42, if you want to kind of mark that as we get prepared to jump in today. Well, this should come as no surprise to a lot of you, but I have always carried with me a deep love for the local church. I think it comes as probably an occupational hazard of my father being a pastor, but I have always, for as long as I can remember, loved the church. Now, some kids grew up in gymnasiums or on football fields. Some of you grew up running around your neighborhood. I grew up playing hide-and-seek under church pews and pretending to lead worship from a dark stage. So if you're wondering what my social status was growing up, you can go ahead and kind of connect the dots there. But man, I have always loved the church. And it wasn't until my college years that I recognized that what I knew the church for was not what everyone else really knew the church for. See, I loved the church for its people, for its purpose, for the heart that I had an opportunity to really see behind the scenes. But I recognized that my experience was a unique one. What I loved and knew the church for was not what everyone knew the church for. And I found that many people did not know the church for its love and its generosity, its kindness, its humility, the good people that made it up, that actually a lot of people knew the church for something very different. They knew it for judgment, hypocrisy, even greed and dishonesty. Some of you sitting here this morning have a little bit of that skepticism inside of you as well, that although you maybe like the church, you want to be a part of the church, you're not fully sure that you can trust the church. Now, although this was a real, a new revelation for me, this is something that is actually as old as the church itself. From the very beginning of the church, the church has struggled to maintain the reputation and the image that its founding father, Jesus, intended. And now in this next generation, more than ever before, there seems to be this deep distrust of organized religion and really the church at large, and it is having devastating impact in the next generation. In fact, studies would tell us that 64% of people raised in the church will now leave the church by the time they turn 30. And it has someone like me who so completely believes in the hope and the goodness of church, asking themselves the question, what gives? That if the church was Jesus' intention to get his name and his teaching out into the world, if Jesus said that the church was going to be the hope of the world, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the power of the local church, then what exactly are we getting wrong? And more importantly... How can we start getting it right? 
It was this cultural trend and shift that had us asking ourselves a really important question a few years ago. It was a question first posed by a man named Jeff Henderson, and it was a simple question, but it was really profound. He said, what if the local church stopped being known for what it was against, and it started to be known for what it were for? What if, as a church, we were intentional to be known for the to-do list that Jesus gave us? What if we were known for our generosity? What if we were known for the way that we served and loved our local community? What if what Jesus said would be the identifier of all believers was actually the identifier of us, the church? What if people knew us for our love? And as this thinking and question asking took off, it started to shape really everything we did. The things that we taught, the things that we thought about, even the budget eventually started to make this shift of how we could be for Siouxland, for our community, for the people that Jesus was for like never before. How could we give and serve and love in our community in such an extravagant way that people would start to take notice? Now, I know this can feel a little bit like this new age, fresh new initiative in town, but this way of thinking is actually as old as the church itself, that from its very beginnings, this was Jesus' vision and his intentions for the church. The church of Jesus Christ kind of took off after the resurrection of Jesus. After he's proven that he is, in fact, the Son of God, he kind of gathers up all his disciples and he gives them sort of this rallying cry. He says, listen, I want you to take what I have taught you and I want you to take it to the very ends of the earth. Teach people, make disciples out of them. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded of you. Love them, serve them, give to them in the same way that I have done for you. And then I will be with you always. And then he leaves. He eventually sort of ascends on this cloud and the disciples are sort of standing around together looking at each other. Well, now what are we supposed to do? I find it so comical that eventually God kind of sends these angels down to look at the disciples and say, listen, you heard the man. Stop picking your noses and get out and do what he told you to do. And so they do. And Peter and James start to form this impressive assembly of early believers. They are so on fire for the truth of who Jesus was, the things that he taught them, and they are living it out like never before. We get this incredible picture of the early church in Acts 2. I truly believe the closest image we can get of what fellowship will look like in heaven is this vision we get of the early church in Acts 2. Take a look with me at how they are described. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals and to prayer. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. What an incredible picture of the church. 
a group of people so willing to give of whatever they have that they're actually selling their possessions to give to people who are in need. They're meeting together daily. They are devoted to God. They are devoted to his teaching, to worshiping him. And God is adding to their number daily. They are giving and serving and loving like never before. But you know as well as I do that this picturesque vision of the church doesn't last forever. Eventually, this living and vibrant church becomes a much different looking church. Peter goes on to basically just continue doing what Jesus asked them to do, to build more churches, to continue spreading the name of Jesus. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, stays behind to continue leading this group of early believers. But the congregation is looking a lot different nowadays. Times are tough. The persecution that plagued Jesus now plagues his followers. And it's this very persecution that forces this church to scatter. And they are in a season now where they need encouragement like never before. They are fearful. They are tired. They are apathetic. They are falling into old sin and old habits and old ways. And it's in this season that James decides to write them a letter. We know this letter as the book of James. And in it, he challenges these early believers. He kind of calls them back to their roots. He mimics a lot of the Sermon on the Mount that many of them heard from Jesus. And he says, listen, you've got to go back to the way you used to do things. I'm noticing this shift in you and the way that you behave. You have to go back to the things that Jesus originally called you to. And although this letter from James is a letter to the early church, it's also a letter to us. The church of Jesus 2,000-some years later still has the very intentions and visions that the early church did as well. And as James sits here and he challenges these early believers, it's a challenge to us too. To take a look at what the early church was known for and ask ourselves, how are we measuring up to that standard? If the markers of the early church were how they gave to one another, how they served one another, how they loved one another, then how do we rank in that lineup? We're going to spend the next three weeks together taking a look at each one of those markers, at generosity, at service, at love. And this morning, we're going to take a look at generosity. James, when he starts to talk about this in his letter to these different churches that are scattered throughout the region, he does so in a way that is a little bit harsh. If you've ever read James before, you know that James is an encourager, but you know that he sort of assaults you with his encouragement. That if James were a parenting style, he would not be gentle parenting. He would be like 1950s parenting. But remember when James begins speaking to generosity in James 5, he is speaking to the same group of believers that was just commended for their generosity in the book of Acts. In three short sentences, their generosity is named six different times. They have generosity coming out of their ears. But something has changed. And James has had enough of the tendencies that he is seeing taking place in the church now. Take a look at how James begins to speak to them. He says, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all of the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. 
Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. The word of the Lord. Now, I'll be honest with you, if this verse makes you uncomfortable, it made me uncomfortable when I read that it was our key verse together this morning. So I did what any good pastor does, and I looked around for a softer translation, a translation that would be less offensive, maybe come at this from a different angle for you. Typically, the message translation does that. So here's what the message translation says for you. And a final word to you arrogant rich, take some lessons in lament. You will need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. I cannot make it any softer. (laughs) James has had enough. He saw alive and vibrant what it looked like when the people of God lived out the teaching of God. But what he's looking at now is a church that has fallen into fear and self-reliance. He's looking at a church that once had their eyes on their provider that has now shifted their eyes to the provision. Their trust is no longer in a God that is leading them, but on themselves and where they can take themselves. And so as James challenges them with these words, he challenges us as well. He begins like this, look here, you rich people. Now, if you're like me, you hear this portion and you think to yourself, oh, not for me. I am not a rich person. But let me give you a little reality check this morning. They say by international standards, if you have a household household income of $33,000 or more, you are in the top 1%. You are in the top 1% if your household makes $33,000 or more. In fact, some translations interpret what James is saying to be, hey, you, who have more than you need to live. So if you're hoping that James is not speaking to you this morning, I have bad news. I have a feeling that he is. But he says, listen up, people. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of the terrible troubles ahead of you. Now, maybe you're like me, and you read this, and you think to yourself, well, is James some sort of prophet? I mean, does he know that something is coming down the pipe for these people? Did Jesus maybe whisper some juicy gossip to James on his way out of what was about to go down? I don't think so. James is speaking to a tendency that he is recognizing is about to bring incredible disappointment to these people. He's looking at them, and he's saying, listen, all of you who are hoarding and collecting away for a rainy day, I want you to know that your future is not as secure as you think it is. I see you taking your eyes off of your provider. You are putting your trust in your provision, and I want you to know that ultimately that is going to let you down. He noticed this tendency in them to feel like the more resources they had, the more money they had, the less problems they would have, the more security they would have. Have you ever fallen into that tendency yourself? I know you think that it was actually Notorious B.I.G. who coined the phrase, mo money, mo problems, but it was actually James. James knew that these people thought that more money would bring more security, but he knew all they were doing was distorting their sense of what they could actually put their hope and their trust in. He continues on as he talks to them, your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are like moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. 
James says you're collecting so much for yourself that it's actually decaying. Now, I want to be clear here. James is not speaking against wealth in this moment. Scripture is clear that we are commended for our hard work, that the resources that we are given are a gift from God for us to enjoy. But what James is saying to these people is the issue is not how much you have coming in. The issue is how much you are allowing to stack up. The issue is that you're holding on to it so tightly and for so long that eventually what you're holding on to is not going to be good for anything or anybody. A few years ago, we were spending some time at my parents' house. We were sitting out in the living room, and my mom was back in their closet kind of cleaning some things out, and we heard a loud yell from the back room. Now, my mom is an incredible person, but one thing that she is is she is an overreactor. So typically when she yells, nobody really runs. We just kind of wait for her to come out and tell us what minor thing just occurred. And she eventually makes her way out of the back room, and she's holding this small little box She walks it over to my dad, and my dad's reaction is what got a little bit of reaction out of the rest of us. See, about 30 years before that, my dad had actually graduated seminary. And as people often do with graduation, they got a lot of incredibly generous gifts from people. Checks that people had written to them as sort of just this celebration that he had graduated seminary. And my mom, being responsible, had taken all of these checks some 30 years ago and put them all away in a small box for safekeeping. Can you guess what my mom had just discovered? If you want to see a six-foot-five Dutchman close to heart failure, give him a box of checks that he can no longer use. James is saying to us, you guys are doing the very same thing with the wealth that you've been blessed with. God has given you so much and you're so concerned that he's not going to provide any more that you're keeping it all to yourselves and eventually it's not going to be good for anyone or anything. If I could give you sort of the Lydia Miller translation of what James is saying in this entire section, he's saying to you, you need to start giving while you are living. Give while you are alive because the things that you are holding onto are molding. The things that God has blessed you with are about to be no good for anyone or anything. Now, I know that James has a tendency to sound extreme. His words are harsh, but we have to understand the perspective that James is speaking from. James is the half-brother to Jesus, which means no one had a front-row seat to the teaching of Jesus like James. He sat there and he listened while Jesus spoke about a kingdom that is different from this one. A life that was eternal where the things in this world aren't going to matter anymore. And even if James sat there and listened to the teaching of Jesus and didn't buy into all of it, and scripture is pretty clear that he didn't, eventually James is going to watch his brother be crucified, buried in a tomb, and then have a conversation with him a few days later. James is looking into the eyes of the early church and saying, we saw this man killed and resurrected. Why are you not taking the teaching of him seriously? You are called to be the hope of the world. Start acting like it. Some of the most difficult conversations that I have had with people are with people who have been hurt and wounded and burned by the church. 
People who have sort of this distrust of the church. People who have maybe watched the church from a distance and seen that it really has nothing worth offering them. And I find myself so badly wanting to correct their opinion. I find myself so badly wanting to sit them down and tell them about all of the wonderful people here that I know. People who are Jesus like I have never seen it before. People who love well and give well and serve well. People who bring a hope into a world where it is desperately needed. People who understand that they have been shown extravagant generosity by God and who are desperate to share that extravagant generosity with the world around them. It's why this series is my favorite because it gives us an opportunity as the church of Christ to link arms and do something tangible in the name of Jesus. It allows us to do something together that we could never do alone, to give and serve and love in such a way that a broken and hurting world takes notice. And so we ask ourselves with this series, how can we give? How can we serve How can we love like never before? Now, we recognize as we do a series like this that there is still what we referenced earlier, sort of this distrust of the church. And it's why we have said in this series, we're going to do everything we can to not make this about us. We're going to pick four nonprofit partners every year that are doing the work of Jesus, that are loving the people that Jesus would love, that are doing things that we could never even hope to do. And we're going to give to them and serve them and love them like never before. If you were encouraged by today's talk, check out our Sunnybrook Unscripted podcast, where we talk real life, answer questions, and take a deeper practical look at the topics we talk about on a Sunday morning. For other talks, videos, and live gatherings, rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Download the Sunnybrook Church app or visit us at sunnybrookchurch.org. And again, thanks for listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church Podcast.